This podcast is a production of the Ephesus School Network. But his will is Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, You must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Revelation 10, 8 through 11. You are listening to the Tell Me the Story podcast with your hosts, Blaze Webster and Rowdy Wind. Join us as we engage in a complete read-through of the Holy Scriptures, parsing out the original languages with one question in mind. What is the story? Today we will read Genesis chapter 9 and hear of the covenant following Noah and his family exiting the ark. We have a new beginning, if you will, but things are different now than they were in the garden. We will also discuss the extremely important concept that we must always bear in mind when reading scripture. God does not endorse human behavior. God is no cheerleader. If we are hearing scripture, we will understand that humans are wicked, born in wickedness. But God stoops down to their level and provides commandments and circumstances that will bring about people who will bear fruits worthy of repentance. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I give you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful, multiply, increase greatly on the earth, and multiply in it. We begin with a repeat of the be fruitful and multiply bit, which was bored into us, the listeners, during God's character introduction of the beginning of the story. This repeat is a literary device employed by the authors to signify that the story is transitioning and progressing into new territory. The story of the flood, which is at its close now, is an amalgamation of everything that has happened since the start of it, but also a springboard to prepare us for the rest of the scriptural narrative. Scripture is obviously an incredibly long and arduous story, So this will happen quite frequently. Right. We must remember, too, that this phrase is connected to God, Barak, or blessing Noah and his sons, the same way he blessed the living beings of Genesis 1 when he commanded them the same, to be fruitful and multiply. This bless is not esher, which is to bless as in to make happy or to deliver pleasure, 
but it is to bless the same way the soil of a harvest is blessed. If God blesses your field, it doesn't mean your field is happy. It means your field will yield bountifully. That word barak is the word used in this phrase and others throughout the book of Genesis that communicate blessedness in the context of fruitfulness and productivity. Like Blaise said, the flood story is a cataclysmic retelling of the creation narrative where the land was completely covered by the waters and the remnant of the otherwise completely destroyed land animals are delivered on a kufa, an ark, a literary symbol of the Torah. So when the humans are established after the flood, God commands them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And so after that reminder of that commandment, we immediately get a deeply ominous pronouncement by God that the fear and the dread of mankind will be upon the nefesh chaya, both on earth and in the water. Now these two words, fear and dread, uh, they're translated a little wonkily, but Rowdy will get into that. But uh, for right now, I want to talk about how this is happening because of man's iniquity, that the animals will also suffer. Just as any bad authority figure will hurt those underneath him, either by incompetence or malice, the same is true for man's place as key holders for the kingdom of God, or more precisely for this imagery, vassals in a larger domain by the scriptural God. This calls to mind the pronouncements made by God that due to the sins of man, the woman would become subject to her husband. Remember that in these cases, God is not pronouncing these as a sense of approval, as if this is what he wants. He illustrated very well what he wanted in Genesis 1. No, this is simply a statement of how things are. The scriptural authors were deeply intelligent, and sections like this are a lamentation for the world that they experienced. We anthropocentric Platonists spend so much time trying to understand and relinquish the suffering of mankind and the ethical systems to fix said brutality that we hardly consider the suffering we directly impose on our fellow earthlings. We do this because, as Platonists, we have this sense that rationality gives us the edge, that somehow humanity gives us a dignity that doesn't exist in lower platonic levels. This is how people think today, and this is how people thought back then, when those Aramean intellectuals were writing this against the influence of Greek philosophy. So don't fall into the trap that fundamentalists and skeptics alike fall into, where they have this impression that just because the scriptural deity calls it like it is, that that's somehow an endorsement. No, it's a diagnosis. Just as a doctor, when she gives you a diagnosis, is not endorsing the fact that you have an illness, but merely informing of the existence of the illness by her knowledge. And that word diagnosis literally means in Greek, by or through knowledge. It's an observation, nothing more. Amen. Even the ESV renders this phrase like some sort of dominatory power move by humans, which is endorsed by God, the way that it reads in English. Just hear it. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea into your hand, they are delivered. The Hebrew words that these translators render as fear and dread in the ESV do not mean fear and dread like they do in English. The translators are pressing 
this rendering, if you will. Perhaps to make it agree with Genesis 1, where God is stationing the humans to have dominion over the other living animals, or maybe Deuteronomy 11.25, which describes the fear and dread the nations will have for Israel, which is the only other place that a similar phrase in the Hebrew appears. But the word for dread in that verse in Deuteronomy is a different word. In Genesis 9.2, this verse that we're talking about, the word for dread is from the root chatat, which means to be broken or shattered. The word for fear in Genesis 9-2 is from the noun morah, which really means a terror. And if it does mean fear, it is a fear that is aware of a terror, if you will, like how I have fear of a table saw, because I am aware of the terror it can wreak on my hands. Both of these words, morah and chat, are uniquely given a suffix, which shows how they are qualifiers of the humans, because remember, in, in Hebrew, suffixes show possession or uh, genitive case. If you're familiar with uh, that term, it shows that the subject possesses uh, said thing. So literally the verse reads, your terror and your shatteredness will be upon every animal of the earth and upon every bird of the air, etc., etc." Now, I don't know about you, but that carries a much different meaning than the ESV. Lastly, The phrase at the end of the verse, into your hand they are delivered, is tricky. Uh, First off, the ESV chooses the English word delivered, which gives the connotation of God's deliverance into the hands of humans, but that's not the word being used. The deliverance of God is Yeshua, which is the name Joshua or Jesus, Jesus. The word here is Natan, not Yeshua. Natan means to give or set. As the verb appears here, according to the Masoretes, the school of scribes who preserved what they thought was the original pronunciation in Baal usage, according to them, it has the nifalstim prefix to it, which allows the verb to have different voices, as we call them in linguistics, which can change the meaning of the verb. I won't go extremely in-depth, but in short, the voices of a verb can range in meaning from indicating that the verb is being performed to the subject of the sentence, by the subject, by and to the subject, or a little bit of both or one or the other. God is the narrator or speaker of this verse, yes, but it is not perfectly clear who the subject or actor of the verb is when looking exclusively at the Hebrew. The ESV authors seem to think that it is God delivering all the living things into the hands of man, But you could just as reasonably render it as the hand of man giving the living things to himself, because the nifal stem allows for the reflexive voice where the actor is giving and receiving the action. So it would read as, by your hands they are given to yourself. In fact, I would argue that this is more reasonable considering the fact that the verb nitanu, they give or they are given, follows the noun yedechim, which is uh, in or by your hand. Now, Anytime I pick apart the Hebrew grammar, I want to be really careful uh, so that I don't obscure the text with my desire to disprove past translators. But considering the themes of the literature leading up to this point, considering the downfall of man and his bringing sin into the world and the entire earth and its inhabitants literally being destroyed because of man, I think this rendering is faithful, not to my or anyone else's presumptions, but to the story that we've been hearing. 
So next in verse 3, we hear about the permission God gives to eat the animals as well as the plants earlier on. But there's a caveat here, and there will be even more restrictions on this when the Mosaic Law is delivered in the next books of the Torah. I'd also like to, again, add the reminder that God giving permission in the scriptural narrative is not at all an indication of endorsement. I say this because the scriptural narrative makes it very clear that God is the great functionator, a word I just made up, but that's the most concise way I can put it. He's almighty and omnipotent because he is the one who gives functionality to everything as is shown to us in his introduction in Genesis 1. He has control over everything. So that said, things happen in the story that are against God's will, so God allows things contrary to his will to happen. But because God is the great functionator, everything that happens, even if it is against his will at the start, will result in a chain of reactions which will eventually result back to God's will. Basically, the story can't escape a oneness with God because this is God's story. It bears in mind what Joseph says later on in in this very book. What you meant for evil against me, God meant it for good. Even though God has laid out this basic reality for the man, he is firm in his role as the functionator and that he still makes it clear that he is in charge. The one thing that man cannot do, lest he receive punishment from God, is to eat the blood that is in the animal. Why? Well, simply because the blood is the life of the animal, and the life belongs to God, in God alone. He's not sharing this with the man. It's sacred. It's haram, as an Arabic speaker would say. This is why Muslims can only eat meat that is halal, or allowed which is meat that has had the blood completely drained out of it. God has just made a big deal about the dominion man has over creation, and now he is humbling him and keeping him grounded. God is still in charge, and his statutes will be upheld. This is why God requires a reckoning for any bloodshed that is committed. And God is true to his word, as the flood just previously demonstrated. But next time, it won't be the animals who will also be punished, but the man alone. This is a fierce warning. So moving on to verse 8. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as come out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. And when I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. 
So I want to speak briefly on the word covenant in Hebrew because this is its second occurrence in the text. In Hebrew, this word is barit, and it is closely related to the word bara, which we heard as the second word in Scripture. Remember Scripture's foundational headline, Bereshit bara Elohim et hashemaim wa et ha'aretz. That word bara gets translated to create, but it's more so, as we demonstrated in our first two episodes, has the connotation of making something functional. So the covenant, the barit, between God and man is making the relationship between the two players in Scripture a functional, binding reality. Man has no say in this. It is simply God doing what his character always does. That is the nature of the covenant. It is just like the covenants between emperors and their client vassal kingdoms. Be loyal to my commandments or I'll cut you off. But God is the ultimate covenant maker because he is the ultimate functionator. You see how this all connects? It's places like this, dear listener, which demonstrate the absolute necessity to submit yourself to the functional scriptural language. There is no substitute. Yeah, the word in Hebrew for establish is mekim, which is from the root kum, which means to arise or stand up. And as it appears in this verse, it has the hifil stim, which means it is being caused to happen, opposed to it just happening. So God is literally saying, Behold, I have made to stand my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. So it's all God. Man is doing nothing to establish this covenantal relationship, which should be no surprise if we have been Shomer Mashal, hearing the story. I'd also like to touch on a very important concept in the Bible that is being used here. The word for descendants or offspring, like we just heard in this verse, is the word zarakim from zarah, which is the word for seed. So the idea is not of genetic progeny, but a seed. When you produce offspring, or more scripturally, seeds, they are made from the stuff you are made of, because they come from you, and that seed will grow into something resembling you. We all know this. Kids grow up to be like their parents, no matter how hard they try to rebel or to be different. This is how human progeny works. So how much more behooving and intimate is it when Christ tells us to be like the good ground that allows the growth of the seed of biblical instruction? I'm not allegorizing here. To say that these ideas are disconnected would be silly. The concept of the seed is a central biblical theme. Regardless, in this verse in Genesis 9, God is telling Noah and his sons to behold the rising up of God's covenant with them and their seed. According to the story, all humans are functional descendants of Noah because it is he and his sons who repopulate the earth. So logically, we are the seeds after Noah and his descendants, you and me. The story is telling us that this covenant is between God and us, as well as it is between God and Noah, and Shem, Ham, and Japheth. It is between God and every human, as it says in verse 12, with it being for all future generations. Now, I know this isn't some exegetical revelation. We all know this. But most of us take it for granted, like some sort of cutesy, God won't bring another flood because he loves you message. This was probably the first Bible story we were taught as children. And we're taught that this is why we have rainbows and why there hasn't been a global flood since Noah, and God is just so nice for not bringing another flood and blah, blah, blah. I just really want us to pare back what we've heard and try to understand that the text itself 
is extending the scope of this covenant to us, the readers and hearers of the text. It's subtly breaking the fourth wall, as it were. And this is not the only biblical covenant that extends to us, so I really want us to understand the implications. From the blessing of God's promise to never wipe us off the face of the earth by means of a flood, to the expectations that are then placed on us to uphold his commandments because the bow in the sky is not just a reminder of God's promise, but of his wrath. Yeah, that bit about the bow is often misunderstood by modern hearers as simply referring to the rainbow. And while the imagery of a rainbow is unmistakable in this passage, this appearance of the rainbow is not some, as you said, cutesy, ideological myth, but a warning, because God's bow in the sky is nothing other than his war bow. It's a weapon that he has pointed up at the sky rather than down at the earth. But the weapon is still there. Like I said, it's a warning. But instead of punishing the ground or the nefesh chaya, it will be the man who will be punished, because he is the one who is in charge, and he is the one who is responsible. That's a caveat that comes as one who is made in the image of God. Yeah, and you know, that's not just some loose connection that you're making, Blaze. It's called a rainbow for a reason. It resembles a bow, like a bow and arrow. And the word in Hebrew is the exact same root for the bow used by men in their armies. And on the topic of God punishing man alone, henceforth, especially in light of the permission granted to eat animals, You know, I have to push this again and call back to the shatteredness and terror of man now being upon all the living things that we heard about in verse 2. It's echoing the dominion, the vassalship humans were given as a responsibility when they were bara, created to be functional in Genesis 1. However, what we ended up with, being the reality, is much different. We don't have to contrast our modern context to that of the garden in Genesis 2 or the commission of Genesis 1.26. Genesis itself shows us here in just chapter 9 how far humans have strayed from their intended purpose. Just hear these verses side by side. Genesis 1.26 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And Genesis 9.2 says, The terror of you and the shatteredness of you will be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. By your hand you give them to yourself. If I may, please allow me to say this in terms of mashal, of parable. A governor was stationed by the king to order and live amongst his people, working with them for the good of the ground they worked, which produced food for all. But instead, he became a broken governor who enslaved the population through power and might, getting drunk off the fruits of the labor of the people, destroying himself with gluttony and laziness. Will this wicked governor be rewarded by the king for his original royal status or punished for his deeds? You decide. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. 
And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. In this passage, we hear about the character Canaan for the first time, and the emphasis placed on him is evidence of the extreme importance for the role that he and subsequently the people in the land who bear his name will play on the scriptural narrative. But before we dig into that, let's first address Noah's behavior. We've alluded to this many times on the podcast, but what Noah is doing is abusing his very own function as one who gives rest through repentance and turning that into laziness and gluttony. Remember that biblical rest is not liberty to chill out, but to do the will of God. By settling down and planting a vineyard, he is forfeiting his previous role as a shepherd like Abel and is turning into a settler like Cain. Yeah, this should send up red flags right away because the text says, Now Noah, a man of the ground, planted a vineyard. We were introduced to the character of Noah by his father's pronouncement that Noah was from the ground. And how this was a sign of his character, that he would deliver the people to rest through repentance. The only other characters from the ground were Adam and Eve, and they lived in the garden that God planted. I must emphasize this. God planted that garden. So here is Noah, the functionally new Adam, who is the progenitor of all humanity, also born from the ground. And he decides to plant a garden himself. It's a problem. Yeah, and we also can't forget either that in the last chapter, Noah, just like Cain, built an altar. So you see how this progresses. He's he's literally turning into Cain. And we see how this leads to his downfall, because what he is planting are grapes, which he will make into wine, which will get him drunk and cause him to expose himself, thus creating the circumstances for his grandson Canaan, to disrespect his elder by viewing his father's nakedness. And instead of instantly covering him, he tells his brothers about it, thus prolonging the shame. This occurs in the story in order to set up the functional relationship of Noah's three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And just remember that in in the context of the Middle East, the worst possible shame that could happen to you is being exposed in this manner. So this is, this is a, a deeply shameful event that might read as, as a little uh, comical perhaps in our Western brains, but this is, this is some serious stuff. I mean, this is some serious disrespect that, that uh, Canaan is showing to his elders. So just culturally, we have to look at it through that lens. So we've already talked at length about some of the basic functions of the names of Noah's three sons, but now it's time to really focus on what each of these characters represents in the broader scriptural story. Shem represents the people who God originally calls. 
that is the family of Abraham and how they are to spread the name or Shem in Hebrew of God throughout the world. Japheth refers to an enlargement. So he represents the nations who are to dwell in the tents of Shem, that is to receive the name of God and obey it. Ham then refers to the divine wrath, the ire of God against his enemies, those who disobey his commandments and spread violence. His son Canaan then means subjugated, which is why the Hebrew text says that he will be the Ebed Abadim, a slave of slaves. What is this referring to? Well, in the quote-unquote conquest of Canaan, God displaces the Canaanites, the subjected ones, and places the Israelites, the functional Shemites, in their place. Now, in Scripture, this is hardly even a conquest because Joshua and the Israelites aren't struggling for the land. They're hardly even fighting. It is literally God handing it to them. God is doing the fighting. So what's going on here? Well, God is not displacing the Canaanites because he just likes the Israelites more. It's an example, a mashal, to show the Israelites what will happen to them if they don't observe the statutes of God. And this is exactly what happens. The Israelites disobey God, and God sends the Assyrians and the Babylonians to subjugate them. They have now become functional Canaanites. This is also what Jesus is referring to in the parable of the tenants, when he says, Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. If you don't heed to God's gift of inheritance by doing his will, God will take your inheritance away and give it to someone who will. In the Old Testament, this inheritance is the land of Canaan. Interestingly, still called the land of Canaan, even after the Canaanites are displaced. Again, why is this? Because the Canaanites are a reminder that you too will be subjugated like the Canaanites if you don't do the will of God. This isn't a game. It's extremely serious. The Canaanites of Scripture are not just some ancient people of the Levant. Those are the Canaanites of history. The Canaanites of Scripture are all of those who have abused God's gift of inheritance and lost it as a result. So let this be a warning. Hear the word of God and do his will. Sadakallah al-Azim. God has said it in truth. He shall be like the tree which is planted by the stream.